anger is such a common experience that we all experience. I mean, we live really in a time of outrage. Like The internet is full of it. If social media has given us anything, it's the ability for us to let everybody know how outraged we are all the time with all the things. And we can do it over posts, over comments, over direct messages, whatever. I mean, take any popular YouTube video. Have you ever scrolled through the comments of like a popular YouTube video? It is hell. It is complete hell. People are telling people to like, to kill themselves, they want to kill them, they're calling them names, they're like thinking the po- it's like the, the cesspool of humanity is at the very bottom of YouTube comment threads. It's horrible. And all over like a video of a dog riding a skateboard or something. It's like, why are you guys going crazy like this? Now, on the other side though, we might see or hear an image of a story of injustice and get angry. Uh, and we might be angry that other people aren't seeing that same story or hearing that same message or we might be angry that other people aren't the f- feeling the same kind of way that we are about injustice. I mean, sometimes also we kind of feel angry and we don't know why. We're just kind of angry. Or our response is anger, even though we're not really sure why we responded angrily. We kind of rarely stop to think of the reasons beneath that. Like anger is one of those emotions that really roots us to the present and it, just, it, it makes us act. And so what we don't really do is reflect when we kind of feel those emotions. So we have anger, but we don't really know how to use it, and we might overreact and think and just kind of always act the way we feel, or we might completely downplay it and pretend like we're never angry ever. Take Christians, for example. We are rarely angry enough, and when we are angry, it's often about the bad, like things that aren't worth it, like things that we are basically are angry that we aren't getting what we think we deserve, as if we're something more than servants. But righteous anger, on the other hand, really is a good thing. Righteous anger is a good thing, because it's an assault against injustice. It's seeing something that shouldn't be and doing something about it. Anger is the engine that kind of gets things done in, in face of injustice. And anger can, can be good for us. It can tell us where something is wrong because we, get, we have a feeling of anger. That's, that's at least an indicator something's not right. It can motivate us to actually do something about it. And it stops us from being like third-party observers in our world. Like if, if, if we don't kind of feel anger, I wonder if we're really not involved in the, present, in the present moment. So anger can be good, but can we really be trusted with it? Probably everybody listening to this is like, oh, I don't know about that. Anger obviously can be bad for us. Or we can try and cut it out and think that our calling is to be people who are merely nice or merely polite. And we obviously, we can abuse it. That's obvious. We can easily abuse it. We can use its power to control others. We can use it to oppress others. Anger is supposed to call out and end injustices, but it can just as easily be used as an instrument of injustice itself. We're prone to flee from anger and uh, in, in all of its goodnesses. I think the question maybe for us is, how can we use the good parts of anger and discard the bad parts? How can we actually be righteously angry? And maybe that's something you can put in, um, in, if you go to the website, slash ask, like what you might feel difficult about anger. By the way, that's all anonymous. Like there's not even like an email address it comes from. I just get a message to my email. So you can put whatever you want in there. Um, anyway, so w- w- I think we're going to be looking at a few different texts in the Bible today to try and understand a bit more of why anger is good and a bit more of why we are so prone to flee from it. And we're also going to look at God's anger and the goal is to end on how can we embrace the goodness of anger and how can we live this out kind of in our lives from the day-to-day way. And remember, we, last week we talked about our uh, working assumptions. The first is that emotions are from God. They have a dignity in themselves. We were made in God's image. He gave us emotions. That's a level of reflecting who God is. The second is we're not perfect 
and this includes our emotions, and the third is that Jesus makes us whole, and that also includes our emotions. So that's kind of what we're working with as we come to this. So, okay, good anger is good. Bad anger is bad. Yeah, that's easy enough, but it's really difficult to sort through. I mean, look what just recently happened in America. People are going crazy in the worst kinds of possible ways, completely misplaced anger where, where it ought not to be. That leads to riots. That leads to protests. That leads to terrorism. It also leads to us having bad relationships with people. So how do we have a healthy relationship with anger? Something that I would like to grow in and maybe you would like to as well. Here's what Jesus does. He guides us to a healthy emotional life, and a healthy emotional life is one that does include anger. Anger isn't always bad. And, but through our feelings of anger, not only does Jesus allow us to use it well, we can actually see God in a different way as we embrace the good side of anger. We can see God in a way we wouldn't have otherwise. So let's um, look first at our experience of anger. Our experience of anger. We have a range of emotions of anger Sometimes we're kind of angry, sometimes we're losing it, but also a range of good and not-so-good ways of why we get angry and how we use that to begin with. First, there is righteous anger. Let's talk about the good side first. We'll feel good about ourselves, and then we'll talk about where we maybe missed the mark a bit. Righteous anger is where people are getting the punishment they deserve. That's called justice. People are getting consequences, the right consequences, for what they did wrong. Psalm 59 uh, that we read earlier. Psalm 59, 11 through 13. It's on the screen. or um, will be on the screen. There. Yeah. In your might. This is the psalmist talking to God about enemies against God, people who are set against God. In your might, uproot them and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That sounds harsh. Can we really pray that? <laughs> Sounds really harsh. Just know in the Psalms where they're talking about enemies of God, don't think that you are somehow excluded of that. And just know like the real enemies of God, we're not really fighting a physical war as in like Christian nationalism might claim. We're fighting a spiritual war, one against, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. So consider though, even before we get there, even before we make it a spiritual reality, which it is, Think of just kind of your day-to-day existence. People who are wicked, and wicked, like the worst of wicked kind of person. You want them to get the punishment they deserve, right? If someone does something horrible and doesn't get the punishment they deserve, we get angry about it because that's not just. People should get the punishment they deserve. So that's righteous anger. And then there's also unrighteous anger, which we're probably a little bit more uh, familiar with. And this is that James 4 passage that we read said you desire and you do not have what do you do you kill kill that's an angry thing you covet but cannot get what you want so you quarrel you fight you do not have because you do not ask god when you ask you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures anger is a very strong emotion it's a very important emotion anger um, in this book is defined by the way i mentioned this last week i brought it with me Chip Dodd, The Voice of the Heart. It's a fantastic book and has good kind of questions at the end of each chapter if you're ever wanting to dive a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. Uh, That author, Chip Dodd, says, Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required. So anger tells us what really matters in our lives to us. And that can be good or bad. It's not necessarily always good. But it also uh, gives us a willingness to do something about it. It doesn't just like let us steep in it. It's like the engine room of our heart. It gets us going. And that can be good or it can be bad, depending on where we're going. 
Now, righteous anger is in line with how things ought to be. There is a way that the world really ought to be. And maybe we know what that is. Maybe we don't know what that is. But when we see something broken and nobody's doing anything about it, we get angry and we get to be part of the solution. That's what anger helps us do. That's a good thing. That's a very godlike thing. Now, unrighteous anger is mostly rooted in impatience because it's demanding God to come through in a way that if he doesn't, we're going to get really angry and fly off the handle. It demands that things be fixed now and will take any means to do so, which means running people over, which means being, you know, saying stuff you shouldn't say. It means not taking the time that God is requiring in the situation. I think this is probably why outrage is such a common emotion for us today, because we don't know what patience means. We, we don't we, it's not a common um, experience. We're trained to not wait for anything. And so when we have to wait for the smallest little thing, we don't know how to do it. We're kind of left without the resources. And if something isn't fi- fixed yesterday, we wonder what in the world is God doing? We don't take our time. We don't become part of the solution. And in doing so, we flee from righteous anger. The only way that we can live in that way is for, for us to step outside the situation and point our finger at other people or point our finger at other things, whether it's God or others or whatever. The only way to self-righteously point your finger at something else is to distance yourself from it first. It's, to not, it's not engaging in the thing, it's to distance yourself and saying, That's, those are the people who are wrong, we're the people who are right. But, if we use the energy that anger gives us rightly, we will join in with solutions instead of pointing the finger. Think of how God interacts with his creation. He doesn't just point his finger, he became the part of the solution through coming to earth. Now, maybe um, a couple examples. How about uh, you've had a busy day, and when you get home, your partner has not done anything around the house. The dishes are in the sink, the house is a tip, bins need to go out, dinner isn't even made yet, and you're hungry because it's like past normal dinner time, all of it, and your partner is expecting, is expecting you to do it all when you get in and you're completely exhausted. Are you angry? I would be. So would Christina, and rightfully so, Right? That can be, that, when can that be good or bad? Because just because you get angry doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Well, if your partner has been lazy all day, then it's, that's worth getting angry about and talking about. The question is, are you assuming that or are you talking to them about it? Did you check that assumption? Now, the psycho, uh, that psychological emotion of anger becomes physical. Like your heart rate starts going, your blood pressure changes, your, uh, the way you talk changes. How do you channel that anger? There's a lot of energy there. How do you channel that energy well in a way that loves other people? Do you shout? Do you kind of outwardly do stuff? Or do you drive it deep down and harbor resentment? You know, that's a good one to just kind of work on your little resentment ball that you'll pack in like a really tight snowball. And just kind of add to it and add to it. It just is like a lump in your chest. What do you do in response? Do you throw the dishes around? Like, oh, I'm going to fix it, but I'm just going to make sure I slam enough covers, let them know, but not too many to where I'm going a little bit, going a little bit crazy. Now, anger here can be good if your partner isn't pulling their weight, right? It prevents us from being doormats. But how are you going to talk to your partner about that? It's easy for it to tip over to unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger leads to resentment, leads to bitterness, and that's not really living a full life. Or think about the same kind of scenario with a neighbor who does something that annoys you all the time and you get angry every time you see them. Oh. Or there's that work colleague, like, oh, that person, and all of a sudden like, you're clenching your fist and you don't know why and your teeth are being ground. Uh, Tremper Longman and Dan Allender have a book called The um, Cry of the Soul. Yeah, The Cry of the Soul. These books are all kind of similarly named. The Voice of the Heart, The Cry of the Soul. I think they just like 
use a thesaurus to change the names out. Um, this is another fantastic book, though. Um, oh, it says it right there. Cry of the Soul. Anger can be lovely and redemptive, but it can also be ugly and vindictive. It depends in part on the object of the anger, how is it expressed, and why the anger is unleashed. The object of that anger, how it's expressed, and why the anger is unleashed. And maybe you aren't one to outwardly express anger. That doesn't mean you aren't an angry person. Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that the real problem that we have isn't an outward one, it's an inward one. Some of the most angry people I've met over my years in pastoral ministry are the really quiet ones. So, we have varied experiences with anger, not always good. How can our anger be better channeled? It's an emotion, comes from God in some ways, doesn't always mean that those emotions that we feel are always kind of in line. But how, and also, how can we see God through that anger, knowing it's kind of, kind of not always be right? But let's see first about what God's anger is like in order for us to align ourselves more with it. So here's our second thing here, God's anger, God's experience of anger. See, God's anger is the right response to a wrong. We're talking about that. It's an element of justice, the right response to a wrong. Unlike us, God's anger always comes from a holy purpose. It always comes from a good place. It's always leading towards good change as well. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, has this kind of great couple sentences. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. See, we want a good judge. And, some, and a good judge is someone who deals out punishments in line with what that person has done. And this is where God's kind of uh, perfectness comes into play. See, God's response to evil is anger. And this is good. It is good to have an angry response to evil when we see evil in our world. We don't want God to be kind of lackadaisical with evil. We want him to hate it. Like, we hate evil. And we're half-hearted creatures. We really should want God to hate evil. So let's think maybe from God's perspective here for a moment. Um, If we're not going to be too um, heretical, put yourself in God's shoes. What kind of shoes would God have? Like Converse? Doc Martens? I don't know. Sandals? If he's like the hippie Jesus, he gave him sandals? I don't know. He's a spirit anyway, so he doesn't have feet. But anyway, okay, we make him a person. Uh, So let's pretend you are God. And now you made a person. And you gave this person a name. You made a garden for this person. Every, everything this person has ever needed and ever wanted, you make a whole planet for them, full of wonders. You make other planets that this person won't even see for like you know, millennia in the future, and other galaxies, not just one galaxy, but multiple galaxies, all sorts of crazy things, in order for this person to know how big you are, how much your love for them is, and how much you care for them, and how overwhelmingly loving you are. But he's lonely, and so you make another person. The man and the woman, they're in perfect harmony. And you give one small rule. The rule is, don't search for wholeness outside of me. Which is, seems to make a lot of sense. This God just made everything for this one man, this one woman. And he says, don't search for wholeness outside of me. And they say, yeah, okay. We're just going to try and search for wholeness outside of you, though. Is that all right? So they go their own way, to no surprise, of course. You discipline them, but you continue caring for them. You don't kind of leave. You don't kill them immediately. Like You don't like, wipe everything out and redo everything. You try and win them over. They go on to have babies, and have babies, and have babies. And these are all people that you love. There's nothing in this world that you care more about than these people. And you love to spend time with them. You love to care for them, and yet they continue to go their own way. And going their own way isn't just some kind of harmless, kind of just doing their own thing. It's killing 
other people that they love. It's sleeping with other people as if just sex is just a means to a pleasure. It's stabbing each other in the back. It's resenting one another. It's using the power you've given them to suppress other people that you love. And so on and so on and so on. They have betrayed you. They've dismissed you. And even when you sent your own son to die for them, they still don't give you the time of day. I mean, it's difficult enough for us to be able to pay attention to God for an hour on a Sunday, like when we're all here doing the thing. What kind of people are we? A refusal to bow to the king is an invitation to his wrath. And this isn't just a story of Christians uh, or those who aren't yet Christians. This is a story for all of us. We're all in this same boat together. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have our own brokenness. There's probably something that we get quite easily. The anger we feel about a partner not doing dishes or about someone who's wronged us, that is just the single smallest molecule of a drop in the ocean of anger that we deserve, that God has against us, that we deserve to be directed towards us. Because a refusal to bow to the king is an invitation to his wrath. That is a right response when you created the world. When your child fails to listen to you over and over You get angry, and that doesn't have to be a bad kind of anger either, though it could be. Um, In the morning, under normal kind of non-pandemic situations, me and Colin walk with three other families, and they have their kids. We walk to school, we walk back. Um, It's a great time to catch up with parents, and um, the kids love hanging out with each other. The angriest any parent gets is when a child tries to cross, one of their kids tries to cross the road without making sure, you know, they can or without holding a hand or something like that. The parent gets really, really angry, and rightfully so. Because the parent wants their child to be safe. And crossing the road when it's not safe is not a good thing to do. The anger a parent feels is a right response to a child that could be killed because they wanted to go their own way. And so we all find ourselves under this holy anger from God, and rightfully so, because God's anger is the right response to a wrong. And we have done many wrongs. The biggest and worst is probably when we don't really contemplate very much cosmic treason against the king of the universe. But what is most mind-boggling and most kind of insane is the fact that the focus of God's anger against sin does not have to be against us. God's anger against us doesn't have to be against us. He took it on himself. God's anger does not have to end with us. It was poured out on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The depths of God's anger met with the flood of God's love. So, we had a look at our own experience of anger. Not always trustworthy. I think we all kind of, no one would really believe you if you said, no, I'm always righteously angry. We would get that. So then we had a look at God's perfect anger. and That's always the right response to a wrong. And for all who follow Jesus, we are under, we are not under that anger No longer are we under that anger. A side benefit to God's anger being taken up by himself means that we can step into the goodness of anger. We don't have to be underneath the weight of all that anger, but we can step into embracing more the goodness of the anger that God has already always designed for humans. I'm going to get some coffee here. Um, Talking about anger, getting excited. Uh, Let's talk about this last thing, embracing the goodness of anger. Um, and maybe if, uh, if you have a thought while we're, while we're talking, if you go to RedeemerMCR.com slash ask, 
uh, and just kind of put in there, what, how could anger be a positive force in your life? And maybe that's something and you might just need to ponder. If you have a thought that comes in, we'd love to hear what that could look like. Um, isn't it kind of rare we hear a pastor say, I wish our congregation would be more angry. I don't really want us to be more angry. I want us to be more righteously angry, to embrace the goodness of anger. Um, to be righteously angry, we must be consumed by God. We must be consumed by God. The more our ways are aligned with His, the more our anger will reflect His. So we can be righteously angry, uh, and we can tap into that energizing power of bringing change into this world, but only if we're consumed by God. Otherwise, we're going to go our own way. We're kind of left to that. So Psalm 90 will be on the screen here. Uh, Psalm 90, verses 7 through 12, will end with this section. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. And these two last verses in particular we're going to focus on. If we only knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If we only knew the power of your anger, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now to ponder the power of God's anger, this verse is telling us, that leads to wisdom. I don't like pondering God's anger. That's <laughs> not something I really want to do. I'm going to, what's a good relaxing time? Ah, crack open the Bible, read a little bit about God's anger, because I want to get wise. Like, that's just not something I would think of. But that's kind of what Psalms is telling us here. That numbering our days is a humble response to who we are as creatures. We're limited. Our days are numbered. We're not infinite. And we're, we're, we, we need stuff in order to, to survive. We aren't powerful like God is. So it's basically saying, like, teach us humility, teach us our limits, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Now, when we sin, are we more fearful of confession to humans than to God? Now, you might say, well, I'm a Christian, God's forgiven me, but my wife may not, and maybe that's true. It depends, I guess, on what you did. But know this, nothing less than the worst horror this world has ever seen is what God has done to take up our sin. Spending time with that but that reality, sitting in that for a bit, lends to a healthy fear of our actions. What we do actually matters in this world. Our actions actually matter. And God will not be mocked by the cheap grace that you're trying to buy because like, you prayed a prayer once and then you can do whatever you want. Pondering God's anger puts our anger into its right perspective. It teaches us, ah, maybe some of those things were kind of petty or kind of small. Um, or maybe it teaches us, wow, that's a, that was the status quo I was living in. I actually kind of feel like angry about that now in my own life and maybe in other lives of people who were kind of taken up by that. How we get there, though, in that righteous kind of anger, how we get there is to be consumed by God. And this gives us a heart of wisdom. You can't get a heart of wisdom without being still, without pondering, without meditating, without thinking on these things and taking time to reflect. Those are things that when we experience the emotion of anger, we rarely do. So when we're not experiencing that emotion of anger, it's probably a really good time to build up on that a bit. We want to act immediately, right? But that's also not how God acts in his anger. He's patient. He's long-suffering. And so we should be as well. Now, we shouldn't first be angry with what angers us individually. We should first be angry with what angers God. That's the thing that we should really be angry about and, and be energized to moving towards changing. Some of those things, treating people like outsiders, 
regardless of skin color, gender, class, gender identity, sexual identity. The injustices of those with power, not using that power for the sake of others, but using it for themselves. And that's money and and stuff. It's also the time that we have, the emotions that we have to give, the prayers that we pray. The injustice of churches only being inward orientated. See, mission springs forth from justice as much as it springs forth from love. To embrace the goodness of anger, we have to live out of righteous anger. Some aspects of what that can look like. Uh, and this is stolen from that Allender Longman book, uh, Cry of the Soul. This is not me at all. I steal the best and hopefully give it to you guys in a way that isn't horrible. Um, three things that they ran into, and I felt like this is a really good overarching way the Bible talks about it. Anger, righteous anger warns, righteous anger invites, and righteous anger sometimes wounds. It warns. It tells us that uh, there's a danger that lies ahead. It tells us you're in danger of violating love if you keep on acting this way. You're in danger of doing damage to yourself and to others if you keep on acting this way. It exposes failure, which is something you always kind of want to hide and keep away. It exposes failure and draws attention to that which will destroy our hearts. Righteous anger, though, never suppresses choice, choice because it's patient. It never forces. Unrighteous anger refuses to bear the pain of what others may do in their freedom. That's a difficult way to live. Unrighteous, righteous anger is a kind of a bold, eye-to-eye engagement that makes clear the issue. So it can warn about st- stuff that can go on down the road. Uh, righteous anger invites change. It can envision what a better life could look like. Anger is like it's like a surgical weapon, like a scalpel, designed to destroy ugliness and restore restore beauty. In the hands of one who's trained, it can envision beauty. Um, the knife of righteous anger is an instrument for restoration. Now we can wield righteous anger only if we believe in the wonder of redemption that God is the one who changes people. If we don't believe that, then what are we cutting out and putting in? It's a costly gift to be redemptively angry at someone who offends you. It's much easier to either not feel angry or to kind of go off the handle. It's so much easier to do either one of those things. But the absence of anger is the choice to remain unaffected by sin. Righteous anger is called for, isn't just an option, but it's called for when we see God's glory violated. Not our own, but God's glory. Lastly, wounds. Righteous anger sometimes wounds. It's never a mere explosion of like outrage and fury it wounds in order to heal. Uh, Frederick Buchner has this great quote about what a friend is. A friend is one who gives and receives wounds well. It serves the purpose of inflicting pain in order to escape the horror of even more destructive harm. It's like snatching a child's hand really quickly from a fire. Or, or, or if Colin was to walk across the street and there's a car about to come, if I rip him back, like maybe he might feel a little bit wounded or something like that because I grabbed his shoulders really quickly but so he won't get run over by a car. You're welcome, bud. Our destructive anger will be transformed into righteous anger as we grow in hatred and as we grow in the love for good. To be righteously angry, we must be consumed by God. Now, this is really difficult, right? It's really easy to talk about this. It's really easy to make a 30-minute or whatever sermon to just say, and this is how we ought to be. All right, let's go and do likewise. Like, it's, just, it's a difficult thing. No wonder we'd rather be busy than righteously angry. We'd rather do anything else, really. No wonder we'd rather settle for passive aggression instead of real anger. No wonder Christians aren't angry more. We all want to flee from righteous anger because it hurts to stay in righteous anger. Unrighteous anger is given up on hope. Righteous anger is mixed with hope, and that's why it is so difficult. But 
if God could use his anger to bring about my redemption, that leaves hope for anyone. That leaves hope for anything to happen. God used his anger that we deserved against his blameless son. And Jesus knew full well what he was stepping into. It wasn't like, oh, now I have to go die on a cross. He knew that was the reason why he came to earth. He did it willingly. In fact, he had hope even as the object of God's wrath. He knew it was going to be something incredibly difficult. He had a joy for us to even be here today. He had a, like, this was part of Christ's joy for us to do what we're doing here. Formerly, we were only deserving of God's anger. Now we're embraced and brought into a family of love. We saw this verse previously, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who had no sin, isn't just like he became sinful or he became like sin. He became sin, like the, like the synonymous noun, sin. God, in his anger, destroyed him, and as horrible that is, as that is, our sin along with that, our punishment along with that. But Jesus, being God, he didn't just die. He died to defeat death. I mean, is there anything in this world we should be more angry about than the existence of death? And yet, who brought it into this world? And in God's power, in God's irony, Jesus' new life now gets shared with all of us who followed him. Why? Well, the verse says, so we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Righteousness is just the good stuff. It's what the good things are. So Jesus consumed God's anger so that we can be consumed by God's goodness. That's what happened on the cross. And that, that includes our anger. Jesus consumed our unrighteous anger so that we could be part of his righteous anger. Being the righteousness of God means we are set right before God himself. Formerly treasonous people, now part of the family. And a side benefit to being his righteousness is being able to experience righteous anger, which is insane. Us? Like, us? Really? God, do you know what you're doing? Why us? That, that's, that's ridiculous. I was left for dead of my own choosing, and yet God didn't stop there. He brought us into life. With Jesus' death, our death. With Jesus' life, our life. Including the present power of sin upon us now. Which is good news for all of us who get hung up in unrighteous anger. If we get that, if we really get all those things that I just said about what it means to be a Christian, if we get all that, we will get less angry about petty things and we'll get more angry about things that matter, more righteously angry. It means we're not going like, to fly off the handle, we're not going to shout at people, we're not going to you know, hold up signs telling how people, how horrible people are. It means we're going to engage with them in their lives. We're going to become part of the solution, not point our fingers at others. If we are consumed by God, we can embrace the goodness of anger. Now, we've only spent like maybe 30 minutes, maybe a little bit more about anger, and there's so much more to be said. There's so much more the Bible says about it, so much more about how we are supposed to react towards it. Um, so if you have any specific questions or thoughts or reflections or whatever, go to that website, redeemermcr.com slash ask, and I would love to chat about them at the Q&A section because um, we could say a whole lot more, but I would like especially to know maybe um, some things that you would like to go to. Now, the ultimate picture of anger is God pouring out his punishment on Jesus on the cross. The horror of what that must have been. And that's the product of our sin. Let us never forget that Jesus was consumed by God's anger. He was. And that, hopefully, will help us to number our days, for us to realize we're creaturely. We're, we're smaller, probably, than we think. 
But at the same time, the fact that Jesus did that for us means we have a different dignity probably than we think as well. And to help remember this, to help with all this, Jesus calls his people, his church, to remember him together with the Lord's Supper. As we approach this celebration together, and if you're online, maybe you can grab something to eat and something to drink to um, participate with us. As we approach this, and it's a celebration, it's kind of weird, celebrating the death of Jesus. Not just his death, obviously his resurrection too, but it can be like, what are we, just kind of some weird morbid death cult? What's the deal? Well, in his death, there is resurrection. And that leaves hope for all kinds of situations that we might find ourselves in. If Jesus rose from the dead, that is hope for any situation that you're in, because no situation that you're in now is worse than that. That was the worst. It's been done, it is finished, and we get to experience the good side of all of that. If through Christ's death he resurrected, there is always space for hope. For anger to be righteous, it must happen to that hope, must connect with that. There must be a space for redemption as there was for us.